The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Today's reading comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Well, we're beginning a new series this morning in the Gospel of John. And as we've heard those opening five verses of the prologue, let's just pray. Lord, you are the living word of God. Make your word live in us today. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Open our eyes now, Lord, that we we may behold wondrous things in your law. In Christ's name, amen. Well, speaking on John's um, prologue today, as we kick off a new series in the Gospel of John, uh, actually takes me back to the very uh, first year uh, of the life of Westminster Chapel, about 12 years ago, uh, when we did a series on the signs and sayings of John's Gospel. Who was around for that series? A handful of you. Look at that. Those who endure to the end will be saved. You're still here. And uh, it's, a, it's a real joy to think that we are returning to this gospel now and to expound uh, the gospel of John again. John's gospel is penned, it's written by the Apostle John. If you're a scholar or a theologian, you may have heard things said about a Johannine community uh, who pulled together the Gospel of John and the epistles of John and so on. I'm afraid I don't buy that theory. Uh, This is the Gospel of John. The Apostle Apostle John, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who penned those epistles to us as well, and who's found on the island of Patmos, and Christ appears to him there and gives him that great revelation at the end of the Scriptures. And when you uh, read John, you do get a a glimpse of a unique insight that the Holy Spirit gave to him to understand who Jesus Christ really is. And when you read the, these first few verses, you get the sense that you're listening to a symphony, and this is the overture. And the theme, the main themes come back again and again. They're introduced here, and then they come back again and again uh, throughout the book. It's a very musical introduction to the gospel. And as I was uh, reading this uh, afresh this week, I was actually struck by how much more I am in awe of the task of trying to expound uh, verses like this and how unequal to the task I really am. And one of the reasons for that is stated very well by Leslie Newbigin. He was a theologian, a missionary from Britain. And he said this, How do you begin to explain that which must, in the end, be accepted as the beginning of all explanations? 
How do you explain that which must in the end be accepted by faith, of course, as the beginning of all explanations? And that leads us to a, immediately to a very important thought that every single one of us, whoever we are, every, every one of your neighbors, your work colleagues, your friends, begins somewhere, begins confessionally with a belief about something. Right? Everybody does. If you were to say, well, prove John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 to me. Then the thing that I tried to prove that with would in fact be the beginning of all explanations, not John 1 through 5, wouldn't it? But if I've got something I can prove this with, then it's not this which I confess, but something even further back, something more basic, something more fundamental. I often describe this this way. Uh, you know, when my children were small, you know how much children ask questions. You know, why? Have you ever been in one of those why conversations with a child? You know? I was watering the plants one day in the garden, I remember, and I think it was Naomi. I said, why are you doing that, Dad? Well, it's a plant, and it's alive, and it needs water to live. Why? Well, uh, well, the sun kind of shines down on the plants, and something happens in the plant. It's called photosynthesis. It gets a bit complicated after that. And um, it, 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 it makes the plant grow. Why? because I said so, right? We've all been in those conversations with children, and this is one of those because I said so statements. Right? You can't prove the ultimate because I said so statement with a statement that's more basic and more foundational than that. This is what Newbegin's getting at. It has to be accepted, it has to be confessed as the beginning of all explanations. Of course, the task of the Christian apologist is to challenge the non-believer, the unbeliever, to try and make sense of the world without this confession, on the basis of their false confession. We won't do that this morning. But Christ is the starting point. He's the foundation. He's the beginning. He's the son by which all, everything else is illuminated. be a bizarre thing to say, wouldn't it? Uh, let me just light this candle to show you the sun. And the sun is ultimately the source of all light. How do you shed light on the source of all light? That's the problem with my sermon this morning. How, how do I do that? How do I shed light on the source of all light? So what we can do this morning, what we can really do is with our feeble human reach, our faith seeks an understanding of what God has graciously revealed to us in these verses. And that's the way Augustine put it. That's the way Anselm puts it. It's our faith is seeking, our confession seeks deeper understanding. So I want to talk about four things very briefly, and that's not hyperbole. Christ as the root, as the word, as the life, as the light. Christ as the root, as the word, as light, and as life. So the first thing you notice when you open John's gospel and you read the first few verses is that it reminds you of something. What does it remind you of, children? Does it remind you of another book in the Bible? I know it does. It reminds you of the book of Genesis, doesn't it? The book of Genesis. I think in the, the Greek translation of the Older Testament, Genesios, the book of beginnings. The book of beginnings. 
And it sounds like the beginning of the Bible. Again, being restated at the beginning of the gospel. And so it's actually important to notice straight away that what the New Testament does is deepen our understanding of creation. It doesn't alter our basic understanding of creation. It gives us deeper insight into it. And that's what's happening at the beginning of John's gospel. It's deepening our understanding of creation. Actually, the same two words, in beginning, in beginning, which begin the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Septuagint, begin the Gospel of John, in beginning. So what's revealed to us, it is revealed to us, that the root and foundation of all things is not some impersonal idea of a scientist or a philosopher. It's not some abstraction, something that's pulled away from us. But it is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't think about this enough. We don't think about this enough as Christians. We think about Christ a lot as our Redeemer, as our Savior. What we don't think about enough is the way the Scriptures deepen, the New Testament deepens our understanding of creation by putting Jesus Christ at the very root and foundation of it all. Let me just tell you something about the world into which this book was written. And I think that John, one of the reasons uh, sometimes when we are doing evangelism in the Western world and we want to give people some of the Scripture, is we frequently give them the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. And one of the reasons for that is that John certainly has in view the the Greek mind, the Greek world. Part of the reason we know that is that when he talks about the Word, he takes a well-known Greek word, logos. And he fills it with an a new meaning. Not the meaning of the Greek philosophers, but a new meaning. And those people that he was writing to, many of them, the Gentiles, many of them Greeks, believed that ultimately there were two eternal substances. Two eternal substances. There was matter And that was uncreated. And then there were ideas or forms in another world. Now, Aristotle is very slightly different to Plato, but we won't go there this morning. We'll just keep it simple. Two substances. Form or ideas and matter. And they thought that both of these were eternal. They had no real view or understanding of creation. There was no creation in the true sense of the word for the Greeks. And that's significant, isn't it? Because much like today, much like today, there are people, lots of people, who think that they live in an impersonal world, an impersonal universe, an impersonal cosmos. Of course, the very idea of a universe, a unity in diversity, a cosmos, a law order, actually presupposes something very different about the world. But there are many people who just think, well, it's an impersonal world, and there is some kind of self-existent thing or substance. Maybe it's energy. Everything is just matter in motion. Matter is made up of energy, particles. Maybe it's mathematical principles. Some of the philosophers said that. In fact, um, I enjoy telling people that um, Pythagoras, kids, who's done Pythagorean theory in math class? Hannah, I know you have. Put your hand up. 
Pythagoras was a Greek thinker, and the Pythagoreans were so impressed by the way numbers worked and by the explanatory power of numbers that they said, maybe numbers are the root of everything. Maybe numbers lie at the foundation of it. Maybe there is, in fact, a world, another world of numbers. And they actually composed hymns to numbers. They wrote a hymn of worship to the number 10. I've read it. Maybe some people think there's an impersonal mind behind it all. You read some physicists like Dr. Paul Davies, and he says the, the cosmos is like a quantum computer. It's like an impersonal mind, and that's the root of all things. John's audience had no clear grasp of creation from nothing and the distinction between the creator and the creature. And many people that we know today don't have that clear understanding either. And this is absolutely vital for the way John begins. Because he's telling us there are no independent substances like that. There's no independent substance like that. You know, philosophers talk about ontology, being. Being in itself. There is no being in itself. Only God is as he is. I am that I am. Everything else is created, governed, ruled, subject to the word of God, to the law of God. Everything that is for John, he's saying, finds its root, its origin, and its continuance. The fact that it goes on. In its bond with the law word of God. That is, in its religious connection to the Lord Jesus Christ and his ever-present creative and redemptive word. Now, I know that causes us to think a little bit this morning. Stretches our minds a little bit on a Sunday morning. But there there is no substance that's separated from God. There's nothing that's separated from God. Creation is distinct from the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's not separated from Him. It's distinct from, but it's not separated. From him, And this is the teaching of all of the Bible. And we might think in our moment right now that um, is the world and history separated from Christ? Is he up there somewhere? Is God up there somewhere like a being who kicked the world into motion and is just sort of watching what's going on? That's not the biblical image. See, this whole idea of a, of a, of a universe, of a world separated from Christ, from God is the very essence of the myth of our time, the myth of a secular culture, a secularized culture. It flattens out the world. It horizontalizes everything. It reduces everything to meaninglessness. So in beginning, that's how John says, begins these first two words, in beginning denotes the origin and root of the universe. In beginning was the word. So think how that deepens This morning, your understanding of creation. At this very moment, the root of all things is in Christ, of everything, right now, who is beginning and end. He is Alpha and He is Omega. There's nothing in your life that is outside of His concern, His government. His control. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans eleven thirty six. He says, and see if you can get around your head around this, for from him and through him and to him are all things. For from him and through him. And 
to him are all things. No independent substance. Now, in beginning doesn't just mean as well when creation began. It's more than that. What John is actually teaching us here is something about what Scripture calls the fullness of time. The fullness of time. In beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. That wasn't in temporal reality as we now know it. We talk about God's eternity. We can't form a concept of that. We have an idea of it. In beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. By faith, we actually gain a perspective from John that beyond and above all time is a concentration point of all time where everything is constant. Think about a funnel and all of time and it's funneled down and it's concentrated into the fullness of time. This is not simply some moment in the distant past or in beginning. Oh yeah, that was when back at that moment back then. But this is the time that remains present and in force at all times. This is the word that remains present and in force at all times, the beginning and the end. Think about when John, the Apostle John, is on the island of Patmos. And he's having his revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he receives a revelation of all that is happening in time. It kind of concentrates time, the book of Revelation. He's having a, it's religiously, he's seeing the meaning of time, of a a great conflict and a great battle. And he sees things, he looks at things, Christ shows him things as though the eschaton, the end of all things, has already happened. So John is like looking down one of those children's toys. Do you remember kaleidoscopes? Before there was Xbox 5, 6, 7 or 8, wherever we are now. There were kaleidoscopes. You could look through them and his various mirrors. And It's an amazing thing to look through, a kaleidoscope. And John has this experience of time kaleidoscoping, if you will. So he sees it all concentrated And from the perspective of heaven, the eschaton, the end of all things, has already happened. And in this prologue, what John is doing, what he gives us, he gives us just a little window to the eternal God that we grasp only by faith in our hearts. You can't form a philosophical conception of it because you can't get your head around it. This is the root unity of all things, transcending time, who contains all things. Do you know that's who Jesus Christ is? He's not just the man who died on the cross for your sin. He created and contains all things. We see it by faith as God's activity both beyond and in time. Time's a difficult thing, isn't it, to think about. Augustine pointed that out. He said, you know, what is time? If nobody asks me, I know exactly what it is. But as soon as somebody asks me to say anything about it, I've got no idea. That's my translation of the confessions. Right? That's basically what he was saying. I, I can't, I don't know. I don't, I, it's too difficult to grasp. We think about time as duration. You know what time as duration is when you're stood there by the kettle or the coffee pot waiting for it. And you're in a hurry, and it seems to take forever. You're trying to get to work, it seems to take forever for the coffee pot to boil. That's time as duration, duration. But when we think about Christ, what John's saying in beginning, this is religious time. This is rooted in our hearts. It's something that we can't fully grasp. Now, why is that significant? Why is that important? 
Why is that important for us to know? Well, the great comfort in it for us, the great marvel in it, is that in all the complexity of your life and mine, in all of its diversity, in everything that's constantly going on, in the incomprehensibility, kids, that means something you can't fully understand, of what's happening in the world and what's happening in your life and the reasons that things happen. Everything that we face in life, this John assures us that everything is meaning. It's kind of strange to put it that way. It doesn't just have a meaning in the sense that I or somebody else assigns it a meaning. By virtue of being from, through, and to Christ, everything is meaning. It is meaningful. It is full of meaning. And it doesn't matter that you don't understand it. It doesn't matter that you can't fully grasp it. It is full of meaning. This is the time-transcending root of all things in Jesus Christ. And here is the answer of our faith to the question of and the challenges of the sciences and the scientists and the philosophers struggling and grasping for meaning and all of the religious questioning of human beings. It's answered right here by John as the beginning of all explanations. Think about the way Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. There is not another confession in the world that begins like this. One of my uh, favorite Christian thinkers, he puts it this way. He said, Christ, this is what he's, as he's talking about John's prologue, he says, Christ is with God the Father, who we've confessed this morning. Christ is with God the Father, the creator and bearer of the entire cosmos which was created in him. So if you're ever wondering if your life is secure and your circumstances are secure, you know the way um, Scripture puts it, it says, Our life, for we have died, if we're Christians, for you have died and your life is hid together with Christ in God. And that's why our times are in his hands. And the psalmist says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. In the fullness of time. So that's Christ as the root, and I promise the others will be shorter. Because the root is really important, right? You can't get to the branches if you don't have the root. Christ as word. This beginning is the very word of God. So there's... There's no eternal or temporal essences or substances that are inherent or independent powers. There's nothing we can substitute for this for Christ, the Word. That's what John is saying. There's no, there's no possible substance. There's no resting point. There's no origin. There's no other point of explanation for reality. And this is why there will never be a theory of everything. Because if there were a theory of everything, it would mean we'd have struck on some kind of essence, some kind of foundation that we can use as the explanation for everything, but we can't. John says, in the beginning, in beginning was the Word. So at the root of all things is the all-personal, all-relational Word who was with God, plurality, and was God, unity. He was with God, plurality, and he was God, unity. Here is the original unity in diversity in God's self-revelation. We now talk as theologians, as Christians, as about, about the Trinity. 
We confessed the doctrine of the Trinity this morning as part of our confession. And all things are dependent on Christ as word moment by moment. So sometimes we think of our creation as, well, God started it and I'm here. As though you you are now running under your own steam. Anybody who's had a heart attack or a stroke knows that that isn't true. We're not running under our own steam now. Moment by moment, all things hold together in Christ. And this word of his is power. Paul says he upholds all things by the word of his power. So his word is power. Think about it this way, because the centurion experienced it. Remember the centurion who came to Jesus? And he said, Lord, my servant is sick unto death. He was really ill. And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. And the centurion says, I'm not worthy for you to to come under my roof. He said, I've got men under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to this, this man, come, and he comes. Yes, sir. He said, just say the word. Just say the word. And the scripture tells us that at that very moment... It was at that very hour that his servant was healed. Sometimes we look at the miracles of Jesus. We're baffled by the miracles of Jesus. But when you read John's prologue, we understand why he could say to the sea, peace, be still. Why he could say to the servants, just... um, pour that water out of those jugs and it became wine why he could lay his hands on the blind and they could see and why when he commanded Lazarus come out Lazarus walked out of the tomb Because in beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. So this is the Creator speaking his powerful Word to his creation. It's not God up there saying, oh, hang on a second, somebody's praying. Let me just put a spanner in the mechanics of the universe while something else happens. No, all things this very moment hold together by his powerful word. And if he stopped speaking that word, everything would turn to dust. John begins telling us about this mediating word because the word is the communicating bridge underlying God's communion with us and ours with him. So he doesn't, John doesn't give us this abstract idea, this philosophical abstract idea and say, well, meditate on that. No, this is the communicating bridge that is the foundation now of God's communion with us and our communion with him. This word is humbling because, it is humbling because it's the borderline. This, this, this opening of John's gospel is the horizon. It's the horizon. You can't see beyond it. You know when you look out at the sea? And kids, you've all, most of you I'm sure have been to the sea. And you know when you look out to the sea on a clear day, there's an end point to your vision. You can't see any further. Now, we, of course, know there's a reason for that. You know the reason for that, don't you? Right? It's the curvature of the earth. Right? So 
But it's a horizon. It's a limit. It's a borderline. Can't see beyond it. Now, this is what John's prologue is saying to us. Here is the horizon of our reach. This is as far as our reach goes. That's humbling. In beginning was the Word. The Word is indeed God. But this Word is also wonderfully given with creation. And that's why we can know God. That's why we can be in communion with God. The Word is unthinkable for us apart from creation. If there were no creation, we couldn't think about the Word of God that made all things. But creation is unthinkable also apart from the Word of God. The Word of God is unthinkable without creation. Creation is unthinkable without the Word. And so what John is going to go on to tell us in this gospel, on this creation side, so we have, if you will, God's side of the horizon. Let's call that the law side creation, God's law word. And then there's the creation side of creation. And on this creation side, John goes on to tell us the word was made flesh. I'm not going to steal David's thunder, so I'm not going to wander too much around in there. But you see, that's what John's going to go on to tell us. That on the creation side of this horizon, the word is made flesh. We can know God because this is the bridge. He dwelt amongst us. Christ, the word, is God. He is also the word of God. Do you see? He is God, and he's the word of God. And this is only grasped in terms of the relationship between God and man. He is God, and he's the word of God in creation to us. The boundary, the bridge between creator and creature. Now, this is so wonderful. The psalmist, when he's thinking about God, he says, it's high. I can't attain to it. And John's prologue is meant to make us feel like that. It's high. We can't attain to it. We can't know God in his essence. We know God in Christ the Word in his relationship to us. That's what we know. We can know God in his relationship to us. Forget speculative theology. You know, I do hear some young men at times talking about Molinism and middle knowledge. And this is all speculative. How many angels can balance on the end of a pin? What's God's knowledge? You don't know. <laughs> because you're not God. And that's what it means to be a creature. We know God as he is revealed to us in Christ. And so our faith rests in this childlike trust. This is why Jesus could take a child, put him in the midst, and say, unless you have a faith like this child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. doesn't mean being childish. Some of the things I've said to you this morning already, some of maybe the language I've used is not childish, especially if you're getting the translation in Spanish. How do you translate Molinism into Spanish? I don't know. It's not that our faith is childish. It goes deeper all of the time. But it is childlike. It involves trust. Trust. Gordon Spikesman, he puts it like this way. He's a theologian that I like. He says... He puts it that the mediating word is the religious lifeline which links God and man together in a lifelong, all-embracing covenant relationship of revelation and response. The mediating word is the religious lifeline which links God and man together in a lifelong, all-embracing covenant relationship of revelation and response. This is what is so important about the word, is that the word demands a response. 
It's not just an empty word. Not just a word that we can reflect on speculatively. It's a word that demands a response. All of God's word in creation, incarnation, as John speaks about soon, that's his becoming flesh, and in scripture, is directed toward our response in every part of our life and being. And even now, in this very moment, you are responding one way or another to the word of God. Human life is a response to the word of God. Your physical existence is a response to the holding power of the word of God. The reaction of your heart to the preaching of the gospel is your response to the word of God. How does it feel to be dependent? I think it's a wonderful thing. The all-conditioning word precedes, proceeds from God as revelation that calls for a response. And this is at the deepest level of our life, at the heart of our existence. The heart of your existence. All our life in every part is a continuous response to the word of God. That is why you and I, as human beings, have response ability. To be human is to have an ability to respond to God. All the laws and norms that God has set in creation that stand above us and are bound to us call us to conformity to the word of God. And John says there is no other true word. There are lots of other claimants to offer you a word, but there is no other true word. Every other word is either an obedient or disobedient response to his word. Every word that denies Christ Jesus is the living incarnate word is a lie that has meaning only in relation to its disobedience to the word that sustains the very one who tells the lie. You need to hear that again, don't you? So I'll say that again. Every word that denies Christ Jesus is the living incarnate word is a lie. Lies have a meaning. They're lies in relation to the truth. Is a lie. That has meaning only in relation to, to its disobedience to the word that sustains the very one who tells the lie. Anyone on the side of truth, Jesus said, here's my voice. And you know, Jesus never footnotes any experts. He doesn't ask Dr. David Williams whether he can lay hands on the sick so that they can be healed. He doesn't footnote Plato or Spinoza. Spinoza came later, so that would have been difficult. He doesn't, he says, I am the truth. I am the truth. Everyone on the side of truth hears my voice. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, I used to worry quite a lot as a pastor, even as an apologist, about following people up. Trying to convince them of things. I actually can't convince anybody of anything. If you do not have ears to hear, you cannot hear. The Holy Spirit of God has to give us an ear to hear that in the beginning, in beginning was the Word. And there is no other true Word. Christ is life, John says next. If he is the root... And he is the word, which he is. He's also life. Verse 4. Life was in him. Life was in him. There is no life outside of him. 
You say, what about unbelievers? Yeah, their life is still in him. It's sustained by him. He holds all creation together by his powerful word after all. Our times are in his hands. And his word is life. And Lazarus discovered that. When the relatives of Lazarus came to him, came to Jesus, Lord, if only you were here, our brother wouldn't have died. And what does Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. So John tells us that the word is life. He actually tells us later that Jesus declares, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. Don't believe the cultural lie that tells you otherwise in any aspect of your life, that tells you as a young person, this Jesus stuff, it's robbing you of life, freedom, enjoyment. Shake off the shackles of the oppressive religion. Has God really said? No. You won't surely die. You can be as God. You decide what's good and evil for yourself. Now that's the cultural lie, and it comes to us in various aspects of our life. Let me tell you something else. Avoiding viruses isn't the key to life either. Because it doesn't really matter as far as the Christian is concerned. I mean, we have to be wise. We have to be sensible. God gives us wisdom. But my times are in his hands. My life is hid together with Christ in God. You can be a physically healthy dead man unless you are regenerated in and through Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus is life and we trust in him. And John connects life and light in Christ, the word, just as the psalmist does. You remember what the psalmist said? I think we may have heard this already during the service. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. With you is the fountain of life. And we see people, don't we, today, running this way and that, culturally. They run this way, they run that way, looking for any other source of life. And they lead only to misery and to sorrow and ultimately to death. You know, when you're a, it's really important, the songs that you sing, the songs that you listen to, especially when you're a child, because you remember them and you remember them later in life. And I frequently have the songs that I used to listen to or sing as a boy come back to me. And when I was preparing this message, one of those songs came back to me that was written by a Christian artist called Don Francisco. And he wrote a song called Adam, Where Are You? Adam, Where Are You? And he retells the story of creation, fall, and redemption. And in one of the verses, he depicts the condition of human beings after the fall. And he goes like this. In the blinding heat of summer now, the gardener and his wife are in the field. And it seems that thorns and thistles are the only crop his struggles ever yield. He eats his meals in sorrow till he sinks into the dust whence he came. And all down through the ages, he can hear his maker calling out his name. Adam, where are you? And then he goes on to depict man's spiritual blindness despite the redemptive work of Christ. And this verse goes like this. He says, though the curse has long been broken, Adam's sons are still the prisoners of their fears. Rushing helter-skelter to destruction with their fingers in their ears. The father's voice is calling 
with an urgency I've never heard before to come in from the darkness now before it's time to finally close the door. Adam, where are you? And this is what we see in our culture. Rushing around trying to find another source of life and light with people with their fingers in their ears to the gospel. With the word speaking, though, as wisdom personified, this is what we read in Proverbs. He who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. If Christ is life and you hate Christ, the life, then you love death. To turn from life in Christ is literally suicidal, personally and culturally. It is to love death. So people both fear and love death. People both fear and love death. But in Christ, we've been released from the power of sin and death, the gospel tells us, and from the fear of death that held us in slavery all our lives. Sigmund Freud, one of the modern founders of, well, one of the founders of modern psychology, recognized a mysterious will to death as a governing factor in the lives of many people. Now, I don't agree with any of the theories of Freud, but he made some very interesting observations. He also said that guilt is the cornerstone of all neurosis. When we look at our culture, on the one hand, we're killing the unborn, and the elderly, and we want to expand that. And we're destroying the family. So we actually see a cultural death wish. Well, what happens to a culture that kills its children, kills its elderly, and destroys the family? What kind of a future do you think that culture has? That is a death wish. On the other hand, we see the terror of death all around us, and a concern not with how we should live, but only how long. You know, I'm much more concerned today with how I'm going to live, not with how long. This is the religious schizophrenia of man living a life without Christ. He both loves and fears death. One theologian has put it this way, we cannot claim to love life and neglect the Lord, the giver of life, and his word, which sets forth the way of life. The path of life and the love of life means a God-ordained way in every area of life and thought. For whoever findeth me finds life and shall obtain favor from the Lord. Proverbs 8.32. So John says, life was in him, and that life was the light of men. So lastly, Christ is light. When the Bible talks about light, it's thinking primarily about knowledge, our understanding. To come into a true understanding. The foundation of all knowledge, of all light, John tells us here, is in Christ. And of course, that follows from him being the root of all things, the word, and the fountain of life. Sometimes people say, how do you know the Bible is the word of God? Good question. A lot of Christian apologists spend a lot of energy showing how historically reliable the Bible is, and it is. And how archaeology has backed up many of the claims of the Bible, and it has. And how the transmission of the text has been reliable, and it has. This is all good. 
But I don't establish by my arguments the infallibility of God's word. The word of God is infallible because that's the only kind of word that this God could possibly speak. Christ, who is the root of all things, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the redeemer of all things, what other kind of word could such a God speak? Except one that is totally and utterly true. Because you and I cannot bring any new information to God to make him aware of something that might change his mind. Oh, thanks, Joe. Yeah, I didn't see that. Appreciate your help. He contains all things. In him is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. That's what scripture says. He's in Christ, in his face, we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Everyone views all things in terms of one light or another. We live in the light of his word, in the light of Christ Jesus himself. So let me just take the words again of Leslie Newbegin summing up this light because he says it better than I can as he wrestles to try and surmise the significance, the import of John's gospel. This is what he says of, of the prologue. He says, the presupposition of all this is that, in fact, Jesus is the true light and therefore the light which shines on every human being. There is no other light. There are not different varieties of light. There is only one light, namely that which enables us to see things as they really are. And things are as they are shown to be in the light of Jesus because he is the word through whom they all came to be. It follows that all men, whether they believe or not, live under the light just as they live by the creative word of God. And thus it follows that when a person, and this is the rub, listen to this, and thus it follows that when a person turns to faith in Jesus Christ, he meets not a stranger, but one whom he recognizes as the one in whom he was loved and chosen before the foundation of the world. So when people turn to Christ, they're not turning to a stranger because he is the word. He is the root. He is the life. John's prologue is, is a wonderful and awe-inspiring invitation to grasp by faith the eternal word revealed in Christ, to actually find life and light in him. Actually, more than that, to come home to our maker, to our healer, and to our redeemer. And John says in verse 5, as he wraps this thought up, that this light cannot be defeated. It cannot be overcome. And that's a comfort to know today, isn't it? That this light, this word, the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be defeated. It cannot be overcome. It doesn't matter how thick the darkness is, how strong the opposition is, what the problems are, what the issues are in our life, in our culture. There is no other word, life, or light. And even this very hour, the word, the light, is shining undimmed. Undimmed. So let's come home again now to the table of the living word who is the bread of life. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. 
Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.